Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Today, we begin part two of our ongoing study in the book of Job. We began the study last week, and I hope that if you missed that part, that foundational message for this series, I hope you go back and watch it. We laid some groundwork for, I think, a very timely conversation and study and focus on the issue of human suffering, and I hope you'll catch up with us. So see, Job is this story about a good man who lost everything. The words that are described to use, the words that are used to describe Job at the beginning of, of that book are that he was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil continually. And it's not just the author telling us those, those words, but from the lips of God, we hear God in this opening story declare that he is blameless upright feared God and turned away from evil you don't get a resume better endorsed than that and yet he lost everything everything that ever mattered Job lost one loss after the next he lost his property his wealth his children all of his sons and daughters and their spouses and this terrible calamity this catastrophe and then to follow it up to make to add insult to serious injury he loses his health and job see is the oldest book that we have in the bible because it's probably the oldest kind of story there is isn't it the story of human suffering job raises all kinds of questions about human suffering and justice and and what is right and wrong and fair in god's good world and in fact, the book of Job asks more questions than any other book in the Bible. 330 questions like, why do the innocent suffer? And, and why is it that those who may be guilty get off scot-free? Is the universe just? And is God fair? See, the reason we're studying Job is because if you have ever asked any question like that, if your experiences have ever taken you to a place where you felt compelled to ask questions that called into question the very framework of your existence, then it's time for you and me to sit a while on the ash heap of suffering with Job, because by the end of Job's journey, he didn't get the answers he was looking for, but he experienced a transformation that in the end proved even better than answers. We begin today finding Job on the ash heap in verse 8 of chapter 2. Here we read these words Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. 
So the ash heap is the way we're going to refer to the place where he went to grieve, where he rent his garments, he shaved his head, he suffered. And according to the scripture, we're told that he took shards of clay and scraped his itching and irritated skin. This image, though, is uh, we, we've got to get this image into our imagination before we move forward. See, the, the ash heap is thought of as that part of the city just outside the city proper, right? Where usually the city dump could be found. Where you burned garbage and refuse. See, just outside the city at the ash heap is where you went to discard things that didn't matter anymore. It's where you went to take broken things and throwaways. Like broken pots made of clay and broken people made of clay. It's where the lonely went. It's where the outcast, the rejected went. It's where you went if you had a disease like leprosy or whatever this disease was that Job had and no one wanted to get near you in case they were to catch it. Do we know anything about that? This is where you went when social distancing got its start, right? Outside the city is where you belong. And we're told something interesting. That Job took these shards of clay, broken pieces of clay and he would use these parts of clay to scrape his sores his wounds because there was an irritant and he would literally uh, scrape to bring comfort to himself and remove the the decaying parts of his life see the ash heap is where you go when you feel as if you are returning to the very dust and ash from which you came and i find it provocative that he took broken clay to bring comfort to the broken parts of this man who was made of clay. Isn't it interesting that sometimes only the broken can comfort the broken? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, have you ever, you ever gone through something and it was a real something? And I'm not talking about something you just get over really quickly, but it really leaves an imprint on you, an impact. It leaves a mark, a scar. And then somebody who, who's never been there and never done that, never gone through it, attempts to comfort you, and you appreciate their effort, right? You appreciate what they're trying to do, but you realize there is no way on earth that you will ever understand what I'm going through because you've not been broken the way I've been broken. That, that's why we... We say things like there is solidarity in suffering. And that's why today, I don't know what woundedness you have or you carry around or maybe a kind of scarring that you still bear from years ago and you wish that you could just cover it up and nobody know about it. But here's the mystery of our faith. One of the mysteries of our faith is that if you can find the courage to be vulnerable about your brokenness, you might find that you have the capacity to bring comfort to somebody in their brokenness, not, not in spite of your brokenness, but because of your brokenness. Sometimes only the broken can comfort the broken. Is this why when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified outside the city gates? Outside the city where Jesus, the friend of sinners, 
the one who loved and welcomed the outcast, the one who had solidarity with those who were forgotten, neglected, and broken, where he was crucified to make a declaration to all the cosmos that the God who was willing to be broken is the one qualified to bring comfort to our broken human souls. Well, see, that's where the friends of Job come in. We're told that here is Job suffering on the ash heap, recognizing that it's only a matter of time before he himself deteriorates or disintegrates into nothing but dust and ash. And we're told that his friends learn about it. And when his friends learn about it, they come right away. They come as soon as they hear. And we pick up these words in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the troubles that came upon him, each of them set out from his home, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him when they saw him from a distance. They did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. As soon as his friends heard, they came to be with him. No one knows why they heard or how they heard. In fact, the scripture gives no evidence as to how they got word about their friend Job. But in the Targum, let's see, the Targum is this, this ancient Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible. In the Targum, there's this paraphrase where it describes the three friends of Job learning about his suffering in a unique way. When they saw that the trees of their garden had wilted, when they noticed that the meat which had been cooked on their plates became raw, and when they saw that the, the wine in their glasses turned to blood, they knew. Now, that's not in your Bible or mine, but it's in an ancient translation or paraphrase of the Hebrew Bible, but I find it compelling, don't you? Because the reality is last week we talked about how the first two chapters of the book of Job are meant to mirror the first two chapters of Genesis where there is creation language, the establishment of creation, green things and blue things, crawling things, swimming things, flying things, and people, and it's all beautiful and good, and the beginning of Job starts out with everything whole and perfect and blameless and bit by bit there's a disintegration of all of that which was whole and here the friends learn about it according to the targum they learn about it because creation itself was crying out when you suffer when i suffer the very creation from which we are made cries out, you do not suffer alone. So his friends show up, and the text says that when his friends come and see him, that, that his suffering is so great they can't even recognize who he is. So they grieve, they rent their garments, they throw dust up into the air as an ancient symbol of grief and lament, and they sit 
silently and say nothing for seven days and seven nights. Now, I find that fascinating. Do you know that there is some suffering for which there are no words? <laughs> there are no words to wrap around neatly to somehow bring comfort to those who are truly in anguish. And, and we try, don't we? I mean, with the very best intentions, we love one another and we try to comfort one another with phrases, pithy sayings that may assuage their pain. But you and I know if we've ever gone through a thing that sometimes there just are no words. Sometimes we can do more wounding with words than healing. When we say things like, well, I know your loss is great, but God needed another angel. What? Or, or, or well, hey, there's a reason for everything, so we just kind of got to, you know, is there? Or, or, hey, you're young. I mean, these are real things said to real people I know who are going through real suffering like this to the young lady who had lost her second attempt at being pregnant. Well, you're young. You'll have another chance. Now see, whether any of those things are true or not is not even the point, is it? The point is, sometimes words just don't work. Sometimes silence is the greatest gift. The word compassion that we use sometimes to describe these three friends who came to give compassion to Job. The word compassion, you know, is made up of two words in Latin, calm, you know, together, and passion or passio for meaning to suffer. Compassion literally means to suffer with. It means to suffer with. It doesn't mean to console with kind words, but compassion means to literally physically be present with someone in the midst of the ash heap to suffer with with them. The friends of Job sat silently for seven days and seven nights. In fact, that's an ancient tradition, you know. But typically, sitting for seven days and seven nights is usually a ritual that's performed when someone dies. Job was not yet Dead, because remember last week I said even when your life disintegrates, there is an interior integration with the one who made you that will not end you. Well, he's falling apart and he literally is not yet dead, but his friends sit in this ritual that describes their grief for one who has died. My question to you when I read this verse is, do you know a friend who recognizes when something in you has died? I mean, you may not be dead yet, but do you have a friend who is able to look at you and say, there's something different about you. The light has gone dim. Or maybe the better question that I can ask you is, are you a friend like that? Are you someone who, when you see others you love, when you recognize a part of them has died, do you have the capacity to sit with them seven days and seven nights in silence and re resist the compulsion to fill the air with words, right? But rather, but rather to suffer with them. You know, the, uh, 
was several years ago now, but I was at another church and I was at a hospital when we, we had to take one of our members off of life support. The family was gathered there and if you've ever been a part of um, someone's life, either when they enter into life or when they breathe their last breath, it is truly a transcendent moment. It is simultaneously horrible and holy. You, you cannot possibly get closer to the divine than when you're in the room when someone takes their first breath and when someone gives back their last. And this, this woman, it was time for her to go home. And the family was gathered there and they had a friend, a close friend, who had come and attempted to do good. She brought a guitar. And at first she played very lightly, just this soothing music in the background, and it was great. At first everyone in the family was grateful, played hymns very softly. But then the, the songs didn't stop, you know. And if you've ever been on a death watch, you know it can, it can last what feels like days. And the music kept playing, and the songs were songs of celebration and hope and positivity and let's you know put on a happy face and it, I watched the faces of those around the bed of the loved one I'm talking about and they they were not happy at all it be, they began to wear upon them because something was impeding their right to suffer in this moment and so I asked the woman to go out with me we went outside for a moment and I said what you're doing is great I really appreciate you bringing your your music and attempting to love them but we let's give them a moment you know why don't we come back inside and let's just kind of breathe in the air and be, be silent. And she protested a little bit and then I had to kind of just say, we're not going to play music right now. And we went back inside and in the next moments that followed, there was nothing but silence and the periodic beep of the machines and the respirator and then the final breath. And in the silence, in that room, there was co-suffering that was transcendent and healing. The friends of Job were at their very best for three verses. They sat there quietly. They didn't say a word. They didn't try to bring their bumper sticker theology and make him feel better about the way things were. They were silent and present with him in his suffering, and they were great for three verses. And when Job opens his mouth and begins to lament, then for the rest of the book of Job, they blow it. In fact, now we move into the lament of Job, because eventually Job opens his mouth to speak, and he speaks out of the anguish of the dust and ash from which he is experiencing pain. And this is what he says. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and let the night that said, a man-child is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it or light shine on it. In verse 20, it continues, Why is the light given to one in misery and life to the one who is bitter in soul, the one who longs for death but it does not come, the one who digs for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoices exceedingly 
and are glad when they finally find the grave. And in verse 26, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. And Job speaks from the depths of his pain, and he begins a lament all through chapter 3, but he doesn't stop at chapter 3. From the first two chapters when he was quiet, when he was silent, the first two chapters, which, by the way, is what the book of James in the New Testament refers to when James says, oh, the patience of Job, but not from chapter 3 forward. For the remainder of the book of Job, for 29 chapters at least, all the way up until chapter 31, he's in this wrestling dialogue with his friends where he laments and he cries out out of anguish and he calls God to answer to him. Dangerous ground, according to the friends of Job. So here he is lamenting. And we talked about lament a couple of weeks ago, if you'll remember. A lament is simply a prayer in which you, you call out with no filter whatsoever about the condition of your life, the condition of the world, the condition of the broken and the hurting, and those who have returned to dust and ash. A lament is all through the Scriptures. There are, there are lamentations all throughout Holy Scripture. Now, a couple of weeks ago I told you that at least one-third of all the Psalms in the book of Psalms are Psalms of lament. That there's a whole book in the Old Testament called the book of Lamentations, a series of poems and songs meant to cry out with no filter, calling on God to answer for what has gone wrong. Even our Lord, Jesus, lamented. The Lord cried out and grieved and wept when he saw something that was but should not have been. Do you know something about lament? Have you, have you done what so many of us have done over the years, which is, I said it a couple of weeks ago this way, we sanitize our spirituality because we think there may be some words that are off limits. We may think that there are some thoughts or emotions or gut reactions to faith and life that we think may offend God, but have you found the language of lament? Do you realize how powerful lament can be to draw you to the one who knows you best and who loves you most. Uh, Kathleen O'Connor talks about the Psalms of Lament, and this is what she describes as the power of Lament. Lamentation names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, and, and what, what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of lament expose these conditions, name them, and open them to grief and anger and make them visible for remedy. In its complaint and anger and grief, lamentation protests conditions that prevent human thriving. And this resistance may prepare the way for healing. When we lament, it's as if we're, we're calling out into the open something that has been a reality all the while, but no one has said anything about it. When you lament, you name something that's wrong. In fact, it comes from this, 
this assumption that God is good and God has created a world that is good and is orderly and there's, there's, a, there's a system in which God has created and blessed the world to exist. And when you see part of that system broken or when you see part of God's orderly world out of order, lamenting names it, right? It, it, it gives it a name and until you name something, you cannot heal from it. Until you speak it out into the universe, until it's on the table, until you name the addiction, until you, you name the abuse, until you confess the affair, until you speak it out in lament, it stays hidden. And, and in our brokenness, we never have an opportunity to find a pathway to healing. But lamentation creates a pathway right through the dust and ash of our hurt. It creates a pathway for healing. So he laments. And for 29 chapters, he cries out and he calls out, out of his anguish, and pain and the trouble is it causes his friends to be uncomfortable so they confront him on it as soon as he begins to cry out these three friends begin what is the greater part of the whole book of job the majority of the book of job is are these three cycles of dialogues so the whole structure of job well it begins with prologue it ends with epilogue and in the middle there's a bunch of dialogue and monologue and for 29 chapters job will say this is wrong i need an answer and one of his friends will say no job you are wrong you need to change your ways but i've done nothing wrong you must have done something wrong nobody suffers for no good reason and so each of these three friends of job take a turn at correcting job's theology the first is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz essentially says, Job, your problem is you don't understand how the world works. The world is just. You don't suffer unless you deserve it. In fact, these are the words that he uses. He says, think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Come on, Job. You know how our doctrine works, our theology works. This, this fits nice and neatly into a package with a ribbon around it. Those who suffer deserve it because they did something wrong. And Job cries back out and says, no, no, this is not true. He, he responds in one place in this section. He says, oh, that my vexation were weighed and, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would, be, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. This is one place out of a few where Job says, look, I want you to see this set of scales, like the scales of justice. And if you put on one end of the scale all of my sin, and you put on the other end all of my calamity, my vexation, my punishment, you'll see that my punishment has far outweighed anything that I've done to deserve it. And God needs to answer me about this. Well, that causes Eliphaz to react and even his friend Bildad. Bildad speaks up. So Bildad, the Shuhite, which by the way, Bildad was the shortest person in the Bible. You know that, right? Because Bildad was the Shuhite. Okay. 
See, this is what's hard about preaching to an empty room. There's no laughter. What we need is like a, like a sound track. What we need is like a, like a laugh track. So, hey, Bildad is the shortest person in the Bible. You know why? Because Bildad was the shoe height. Okay, yeah, better. So Bildad chimes in, but Bildad's beef with Job is about his children. Remember, Job lost all of his kids, and so Bildad had the audacity to say to Job, Job, you lost your kids because they sinned. You ever try to mess with somebody's children? You ever try to accuse a parent of something that they don't know about their kids? Come on. But can you believe the audacity of having someone lost their child and then say, well, it was probably because of something they did? And Job is about to lose it. In, in, in this, this cry out, he just explodes with rage. This is what he says. I loathe my life. That's a pretty strong word. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to, to despise the work of your hands and, and favor the schemes of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh? In other words, do you even see what's going on here? Do you see as humans see? Are your days like the days of mortals or your years the human, like human years that you seek out my iniquity and search out my sin? Although you know that I am not guilty. I mean, come on. You know that I'm, you said yourself at the beginning of this book, I'm blameless, upright, I fear you, and I walk away from evil. You know that I'm not guilty, and there is no one to deliver me out of your hand. Your hand's fashioned and made me, and now you turn and destroy me. Remember that you fashioned me like clay, and will you turn me to dust again? See, this is what we get for 29 chapters. One of the friends will say, you've done something wrong. And then, then Job says, no, you're wrong. And every once in a while, he'll turn to God and say, and you're wrong. And finally, the third friend will speak up. The third friend is named Zophar. He's been quiet all along. It took him the longest to speak. Zophar, so good. <laughs> okay. So Zophar speaks, and jo Zophar's beef is that, listen, uh, if you just behave rightly, if you repent, the word is shuv, if you turn around and go in the right direction, if you do all these things, if, 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 well, then you should be fine. Listen to how Zophar contends with Job. If you direct your heart rightly, if you will stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and if you do not let wickedness reside in you, surely then you will fill up your, your, your lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. See, this, I want you to, we're doing a little bit more in-depth reading of the, the bulk of the text now simply because I want you to feel, at least in some small way, the rhythm and the, the length, the, the, the repetitive nature of you've done something wrong. Well, then show me what it is. No one suffers without sin well, then tell me what I did wrong. And it goes on and on for 29 chapters. The whole time he's shaking his fist. Somebody in this universe is going to have to answer to me. 
But I love his, his best comeback. At the end of so many cycles with these friends where they won't relent because they're like, hey, we know our theology. You, your problem is you got wrong theology. You need to make sure that your life lines up with theology. You know, in the, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of his suffering, in dust and ash, Job has these words to say. He says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I just love that line. He's like, you are miserable at this. You came to comfort me in the midst of my anguish, and you really stink at it. Miserable comforters are you all. But see, what, what the friends of Job reveal is something that I simply want to refer to here as if-then theology. Yeah, if-then theology. In Zophar's speech, no less than four consecutive strands of if. I mean, read it again. It, it, we hear these words. If you direct your heart rightly, if you will stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquities in your house put it away, and if you do not let wickedness reside in your tent, well, then surely then you'll lift up your face without blemish, You'll be secure and you will not fear. The problem, beloved, with if-then theology is that it is not in the nature of God. God creates out of God's own desire to share beauty and grace and life and community with his created. And God loves us regardless of where we go or what we do or even how we fail. The if-then theology sets up this idea that God is waiting for you to get your life together before God loves you and redeems you and saves you. If then, theology says, you know, if I behave well, if I serve and volunteer, if I give my money to the church, if I say good things and not bad, if, 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 then God will love me. But if I don't do these things and if I misbehave and if I am human and actually give in to my temptation to sin, then somehow God will reject me and despise me. See, the problem with if-then theology is that it drives a wedge between people rather than draws close to God. It drives it between people, but it drives a wedge between us and God. Because how many people do you know right now? I bet you know someone just like I know scores of people who they walked away from the church, and they walked away from faith because they had this idea that they had to be perfect. The problem is, here's Job, who the scriptures themselves say was perfect. He was blameless, upright, and yet he still suffered and struggled. What would change if in our sharing of the gospel, we were able to say to a hurting, broken world, yeah, sometimes hurting and brokenness comes. But it's not because you necessarily deserved it, but it's because we live in a broken, fragile world. And in the midst of that broken, fragile world, let me tell you about a God who stepped into it in order to make it whole. Now, I know what you're saying. I mean, in some cases in the Bible, there are places that say, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you do that, you'll be cursed. It's true. I mean, in places prior to occupying the promised land, like throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's what we call the Deuteronomistic principle. That's a mouthful. If you can say that at lunch sometime today or this week, I'd, you know, I'd be really impressed. The Deuteronomistic principle. It's the principle that gets repeated throughout Deuteronomy, and it sounds something like this. God says to the people, so here's my covenant. If you obey it, if you obey my commands, then in the promised land, in the land that is promised, you will be blessed. But on the day that you reject my commands, on the day that you disobey my covenant, 
then you will be cursed. Now that is very different than what Job's friends are doing. For example, you know, the truth is, if we do follow in the way of Jesus, we know that fruit will grow. If we walk in the way, then it will result in a life of blessing in a variety of unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. And we also know that if we do not walk in that way, if we reject the way, then it will result in a life that is cursed, that there are predictable outcomes to our sin. And yes, sometimes disobedience leads to being cursed. But what the Job, Job and friends did, what the friends of Job did, was they reversed that kind of thinking. And instead, they would think this way. If this person's blessed, well then, we assume it must be because they were good people. If this person's blessed, it must be because they were righteous and did well. And they assumed. And if this person's cursed, well, it must be, obviously, clearly, because they did something to deserve it. And that is a reversal of the good news. The good news is that God meets you where you are, but then loves you too much to leave you there, even in all of your brokenness. So what do you do in the midst of your pain, your suffering, your struggle? Well, we do what Job did. We have the courage to lament because in the language of lament, we are still in a conversation with the one who made us, the one who drew us out of the clay. And we're able to say, you made me with your own hands out of the clay and parts of the clay now are falling apart. Will you do anything at all about it? And in the midst of brokenness, we have a language with God. Uh, I love what Job said in a defiant way. Listen to this, this verse that he shared in that same section I'm talking about. Keep silent, he says to his friends. I love it. Shut your mouth. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let, then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my own hands? Though he slay me, Yet will I hope in him. Can you, can, can you imagine a stronger passage of Scripture? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Do you know why Job had the courage to call these things out to God? Not because he disrespected God. Not because he didn't believe in God, but because he did. Lament is not a lack of faith. Lament is an act of faith because it says, I believe in you and I believe in this world of order and justice that you have established, but something's going wrong, so come and explain it to me. Because underneath all of this is a deep faith in Job. One more verse to demonstrate, and that, and that is this. Oh, that my words, Job said, were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, as a matter of fact, they are. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He goes on to say, Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. And then this most powerful line. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. Don't forget that in the midst of what seems to be irreverent heresy, in the, in the midst of, uh, of speaking what was against the grain of the theology of the friends of Job, 
is an inherent faith that at the end, the Redeemer will live and the Redeemer will, uh, will stand at the last. But if I'm not going to stand, if I'm going to go down to dust and earth and ash and dust where I've come from, then I will speak to my Redeemer. And I will know my Redeemer. And I just, I say these things to you today because not knowing exactly where everyone is in the journey, I just wonder if somebody's listening today to this message and finding something wake up within you. Maybe something that's been asleep for a long time. The possibility of knowing God and being known by God when you thought all of your brokenness and all of your calamity and the thing that you went through, when you thought all of that would disqualify you from nearness in God, from intimacy with God, I am here to tell you that it doesn't. In fact, in many ways, your brokenness qualifies you. For it was you that Christ came to suffer and die. It was you and me and the whole of the broken world that God demonstrated God's love for, in, for us in this, that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today, I, I pray that you might find the language of lament to be able as unfiltered and unedited, unabridged as it may be, to cry out to God right where you are. And maybe it sounds something like this, Lord, I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start because I have this hunger, this need, this kind of innate desire to be near you and to be known by you for my life to have some, well, some meaning, some reason to wake up in the morning. And, and yet all I feel is what I feel. And then tell him what you feel. Tell him what your experience is. Name the brokenness. As, as we said, naming the brokenness is lament. And when you name the brokenness, it's a pathway for Christ to heal the brokenness. Pray those things. And if you do pray those things, I want you to share that with me. Share it with somebody so that you don't have to do this alone. There are friends who will sit with you on the ash heap of your struggle until transformation comes. My prayer for you is this much, that wherever it is that you go this day, that you know Christ will go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and to your left, abiding closer than anyone, than, than three friends, than a sister, a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in, and you know they will, to remind you that there is one at the end of the day who has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear, but mostly may Christ go in you transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his.